Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, November 4th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the recent developments on the war front in Gaza. In the aftermath of the uh, major address by Lebanon resistance leader Sheikh Saeed Hassan Nasrallah, Several European states have contacted the movement for consultation on the future of the struggle in West Asia. The links uh, between Palestine and Lebanon are more evident than ever in modern history since the eruption of the Al-Aqsa storm. And uh, Pentagon bases have been attacked in the region of the Gulf and the Eastern Mediterranean. In the second and third hours, we listened to a panel discussion on the siege of God. Uh, the panel discussion was organized by the website uh, Electronic Intifada. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the North African state of Egypt with the voice and the music of Um Kaltoum. Let's listen in. ولحنها الأصبي تغنيها ذرة الفن
Welcome back. And that was the classical music of Egypt uh, with Um Kaltun and her orchestra. And uh, that was a live uh, broadcast uh, from Cairo, Egypt. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, November the 4th, uh, 2023. And we'll broadcast from our studios in downtown Detroit. I would like to thank everybody uh, for logging on and for listening to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. We want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. In a televised statement, Abu Abeda, uh, the military spokesman for the Al-Qasim Brigades, the armed wing of the Palestinian resistance group Hamas, announced the number of Israeli military vehicles that have been destroyed by the Palestinian resistance in the last 24 hours. Abu Obeda also described the nature of the fighting and the tactics used by the Palestinian resistance in confronting invading Israeli forces on the outskirts of Gaza City. Abu Abeda also described the nature of the fighting and the tactics used by the Palestinian resistance in confronting invading Israeli forces on the outskirts of Gaza City. Abu Abeda uh, said that this battle will be written in history as one of the greatest epic battles against injustice. Here are excerpts uh, from the statements as communicated by the resistance news network telegram channel. Our fighters have completely or partially destroyed 24 military vehicles in the last 24 hours at the battlefront. We directed anti-tank guided strikes towards the Israeli military vehicles. Al-Qasim Brigade snipers are dealing with the Israeli soldiers who dare to stick their heads out from the vehicles they are sheltering in. Our fighters are still fighting in the axis of the Zionist enemy advance uh, in the north and south of Gaza City and Bet Hanun. Uh, They are fighting with valor and bravery and continue to confront the enemy's vehicles. What we have published and will publish will document the destruction of the enemy's forces and the commandeering of their vehicles, which will be re- will re- release in the coming minutes and hours. It is known that we are engaged in an asymmetrical war, which will be studied by the world. What we have published and will publish documenting the destruction and surprise attacks on the enemy forces is but a small part of our fighters below us, their heroic stand, and their blessed operations in the field. If the enemy thinks that by punishing our people and committing horrendous massacres and and using filthy methods, they will weaken our resolve, they are deluded and stupid, and they should know that we will explode in anger against them. In other news, uh, sources confirm uh, to Al Mahadeen uh, news site that several diplomatic entities have contacted Hezbollah following Saeed Hassan Nasrallah's speech uh, inquiring about possible ways to attain a ceasefire. Several European diplomatic entities and others contacted Hezbollah in Lebanon after the speech of his Secretary General Saeed Hassan Nasrallah yesterday. That's according to the El Mahadeen newspaper. The sources confirm that these entities have inquired about the positions of Saeed Nasrallah, specifically with regard to how to attain a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip and the open possibilities that Saeed Nasrallah spoke about. Yesterday, Saeed Nasrallah, in his speech, proclaimed that 
What is happening in Gaza reveals the direct American responsibility for all this killing, accompanied by U.S. hypocrisy. And it also reflects the brutal and barbaric nature of the usurping entity that they planted in our region. We also affirm that Washington is in entirety responsible uh, for the ongoing war in Gaza, while Israel is merely a tool for execution, stressing that America is the side preventing the succession of the aggression against Gaza and rejecting any ceasefire decision. As a matter of fact, the Americans are the ones running the war in Gaza, according to Saeed Nasrallah, quote, which instigated the Islamic resistance in Iraq to initiate attacks on the American occupation bases in Iraq and Syria, describing it as a wise and courageous decision. Also addressing uh, the Americans, Nasrallah said, you can stop the aggression against Gaza because it is the aggression you unleashed, and whoever wants to prevent a regional war must hasten to stop this aggression. It is a stern warning, Saeed Nasrallah declared, that the Lebanese resistance is ready for any eventuality, saying all possibilities of our Lebanese front are open and all options are on the table, and we will resort to them at any time, adding we must all be ready for any scenarios that may arise. And we played uh, that speech in its entirety uh, in the previous uh, episode of uh, the Pan-African News, uh, Pan-African Newswire and the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. So just go to our archives and you'll be able to hear um, Saeed uh, Nasrallah's entire address on uh, November 3rd of 2023. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Deputy Secretary General of Hezbollah, Sheikh Naim Qasim, reaffirms Hezbollah's commitment to confronting the Israeli occupation, urging Israel to end its aggression against the Gaza Strip to prevent a potential regional war. The Deputy Secretary General of Hezbollah, Sheikh Naim Qasim, underscored earlier today that the massacres being committed by the Israeli occupation across the Gaza Strip quote, amplifies, amplifies our conviction and determination to confront the enemy, end quote. Qasim then added that the U.S. and the West have fallen morally and politically, reaffirming that their human rights and democracy slogans have become clearly fake. Sheikh Qasim also stressed that the masks have fallen thanks to the heroic operation Al-Aqsa flood. The deputy further repeated what Saeed Hassan Nasrallah has said yesterday, that Hezbollah is part of this confrontation on the road to Palestine, stressing that the Lebanese resistance makes no distinction between Lebanon, Palestine, and the region in the quest for liberation. Qasim further explained Hezbollah's responsibility in the current confrontation, saying, we will always remain on the battlefield, influencing and distributing uh, Israel's plans, disrupting Israel's plans, and we will remain united. We will continue our resistance, and we will pay the necessary prices at any time that the confrontation requires and in any way we find fit. And finally, two military facilities housing U.S. occupation forces in Iraq in the semi-autonomous Kurdistan region and Syria's northeastern province of Hasaka have been struck by drones and a barrage of rockets. The Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella group of anti-terror fighters, in a statement published on his Telegram channel, claimed responsibility for the attack on the Al-Harir Air Base, 
situated 45 kilometers, that's some 27.9 miles, north of Erbil International Airport in northern Iraq. And this happened earlier this morning. It noted that the base was targeted by two drones, and the aircraft directly hit their targets, linking the assault to Washington's unconditional support for Israel's bloody military campaign against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. The U.S. House of Representatives on Thursday passed the $14 billion aid bill, which includes billions for Israel's military, including $4 billion for procurement for Israel's Iron Dome and David Sling defense systems to counter Palestinian retaliatory rocket attacks. Various U.S. officials have also supported Israel's war on Gaza and rejected any ceasefire plan at the United Nations. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, November 4th, 2023, all you need to do is log on to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Here to me, 
Detroit's own uh, John Lee Hooker uh, with the track entitled Peace Loving Man. Yes, Peace Loving Man amid a world uh, threatened uh, perilous war emanating from Washington and Wall Street. And of course, uh, all you have to do is log on to the Pan African Newswire to stay abreast of all the issues involving the siege on Gaza, uh, developments taking place on the African continent uh, in Eastern Europe and indeed around the world. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, November 4th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into a panel discussion uh, put together by Electronic Antifada, which provides an update on developments, particularly the humanitarian situation uh, in Gaza. Let's listen in. Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada live stream for Thursday, November 2nd. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley and John Elmer. 
We have another packed show for you today, and we appreciate all of you tuning in as we head into the fourth week of this genocide in Palestine. Uh, after remarks from our executive director, Ali Abunima, we'll be joined by Hada Ajil and her daughter, Raida, and also by Roger Waters uh, later on in the show. We also have a video message from our friend Khalil Abu Shamala in Gaza, so please stay tuned. Um, and with that, Ali, your opening remarks. Here's what the New York Times printed on Monday. It became evident to U.S. officials that Israeli leaders believed mass civilian casualties were an acceptable price in the military campaign in Gaza. In private conversations with American counterparts, Israeli officials referred to how the United States and other allied powers resorted to devastating bombings in Germany and Japan during World War II including the dropping of two atomic warheads in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to try to defeat those countries. Let me translate that into plain English. Israel is modeling its attack on Gaza on the American atomic bombings of Japanese cities and the British firebombing of Dresden. Together, these horrifying and completely unjustified atrocities killed hundreds of thousands of people. Israel is likening the Palestinians in Gaza, a deeply impoverished population of 2.3 million people, most of them refugees, to the Japanese Empire and the Third Reich. And Joe Biden is fine with all of that. By the measures of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Dresden, and with close to 10,000 Palestinians killed in the last 26 days, almost half of them children, and new massacres almost every hour, Israel is just getting started. What the New York Times printed in its usual passive tone and buried deep inside an article isn't surprising. Israeli leaders and their fanatical, bloodthirsty supporters have said it themselves. Here's Tsipi Hotevli, the Israeli ambassador in London. Let's take a look on history. When you fight Nazi Germany, mm. you knew that there were many, many civilians got attacked from your attacks on mm. German cities. Dresden was a symbol, but you attacked Hamburg, you attacked other cities, and altogether it was over 600,000 civilian Germans got killed. And was it worth it in order to defeat Nazi Germany? And the answer was yes. And then here's uh, U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham, Graham a Republican, although he might as well be a Democrat. Is there a threshold for you, and do you think there should be one for the United States government, at which the U.S. would say, Let, let's hold off for a second in terms of civilian casualties. Uh, is, there, I, is there a point at no, which no. you would start to question? No, I, if somebody asked us after World War II, is there a limit what you would do to make sure that Japan and Germany don't conquer the world? Is there any limit what Israel should do to the people who are trying to slaughter the Jews? The answer is no. There is no limit, but here's what you need to do. Be smart. Let's try to limit civilian casualties the best we can. Let's put humanitarian aid in areas that protect the innocent. I'm all for that, but this idea that Israel has to apologize for attacking Hamas, who's embedded with their own population, needs to stop. The goal is to destroy Hamas. Hamas is creating these casualties, not Israel. I don't think anyone's... 
few days ago, Craig Mochaiber, the director of the New York office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, resigned from his post. In his widely circulated letter to Volker Turk, the UN High Commissioner, Mochaiba wrote, this is a textbook case of genocide. The European ethno-nationalist settler colonial project in Palestine has entered its final phase toward the expedited destruction of the last remnants of indigenous Palestinian life in Palestine. Let's hear briefly from uh, Craig Mukhaibar himself. The difficult part of proving genocide is intent, because there has to be an intention uh, uh, to uh, destroy and whole or in part a particular group. In this case, the intent by Israeli leaders has been so explicitly stated and publicly stated by the prime minister, by the president, by senior cabinet uh, ministers, by military leaders, that that is an easy case to make. It's on the public record. If we can allege that we see war crimes, crimes against humanity, as we have often done, there's no reason to exclude uh, where we see very strong evidence the possibility of genocide uh, being committed. And I think you're going to be hearing that term more and more in connection with what we're witnessing in Gaza. I feel quite confident as a human rights lawyer in saying that what I see unfolding in Gaza and beyond uh, is genocide. And now we're all also well aware of the leaked Israeli intelligence assessment that calls for Israel to, quote, evacuate the civilian population to Gaza under the cover of moving them for humanitarian reasons. In the initial stage, the Israeli plan reads, tent cities will be established in the Sinai region in Egypt. Subsequently, the creation of a humanitarian corridor to assist the civilian population of Gaza and the construction of new cities in a resettlement area in northern Sinai. The leaked Israeli plan lays out steps for implementation that match exactly what we're seeing in reality. It starts with, I quote, a call for the evacuation of the non-combatant population from the combat zone in which Israel is attacking Hamas. In the first stage, it says, aerial operations will be carried out with a focus on the northern Gaza Strip to allow for the ground maneuver into an evacuated zone that does not require combat in a densely populated civilian area, end quote. It's very clear from the Israeli plan and from Israel's actions in reality that under the guise of targeting Hamas, Israel's real target is the expulsion of the population. Claire Daly, a member of the European Parliament from Ireland, and one of less than a handful of voices of decency in that body, said this in response to Mukhaibar's letter. There will be no hiding behind we did not know when the time comes for European and American leaders to answer for their active role in the atrocities Israel is carrying out. They know it is a choice, not a blunder. The whole world can see we will not forget. By some credible accounts, including its own, Israel has already dropped the equivalent of an atomic bomb maybe even two on Gaza. We know from the horrifying images we see every day and satellite images confirm the scale of the destruction. And while murder from the air has been Israel's main method of killing up to now, it could quickly be overtaken by famine, 
thirst and disease. Water, food and medicine are still deliberately cut off from Gaza. Yesterday, the Turkish-Palestinian Friendship Hospital in Gaza ran out of fuel and was forced to stop most of its activities, rendering 70 cancer patients at serious life risk, the UN has said. On Wednesday evening, Al Hilu Hospital, also in Gaza City, was reportedly struck by shelling. The hospital had absorbed and replaced Al Shifa Hospital's maternity ward, which is being used now to treat the wounded. Currently, 14 out of 35 hospitals with inpatient capacity across Gaza are not functioning. Gaza City and northern Gaza have been largely cut off from the rest of the territory as a result of the Israeli invasion. This means that delivery of humanitarian aid from the south to about 300,000 displaced persons in the north has come to a halt, according to the UN. No one can say they didn't know, but here's President Biden once again pretending that the tiny trickle of humanitarian aid coming in through Egypt and which cannot be distributed to where it is most needed is somehow a solution. Yesterday saw the largest delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance into Gaza so far, and more trucks are being cleared to enter today, Biden claimed on Tuesday. As of Wednesday, according to the UN, a total of 227 trucks had entered Gaza since October 21st. That's an average of less than 20 trucks per day, compared with a typical number of 500 trucks a day before the 7th of October. This is a cruel hoax. In reality, this is all part of a very cynical propaganda exercise by the United States and Israel to put a humanitarian face on their genocide. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported yesterday, and I quote, Israel has been emphasizing its involvement in allowing humanitarian aid to enter the Gaza Strip in recent days in an attempt to retain international support and legitimacy for its military operation against Hamas, end quote. But as everyone can see, Israel's main target is not and has never been Hamas. It is the Palestinian people themselves, especially children. We see this too in the West Bank, where Israel does not have the excuse of Hamas to justify its escalating American and European-backed savagery. In the last three weeks alone, Israel has killed more than 130 Palestinians in the West Bank, including dozens of children. Since October 7, 2,000 Palestinians have been forced from their homes in the West Bank by settler terrorism backed by the U.S.-armed Israeli military. In the meantime, Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is traveling around making plans again. According to Haaretz today, he's discussing who is going to run Gaza after Israel defeats Hamas. Will it be a UN force? Will it be a coalition of Arab client regimes? Or will it be the Palestinian Authority collaborator regime from Ramallah brought in on the backs of Israeli tanks to administer the rubble on behalf of the enemy occupier? It is quite nauseating to hear of an American official once again acting like an old-time colonial administrator, but this is and always has been their way from the conquest of the continent we're sitting on to their murderous occupation of the Philippines and the slaughter of millions in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. 
the Americans had big plans for Iraq too after their invasion. They installed an American dictator, Paul Bremer, and then they thought they could remake Iraq in their image. But Iraqis had other plans and the Palestinians do too. We have started to see global opposition to this genocide pick up. Honorable leaders such as Colombia's president Gustavo Petro have clearly denounced the genocide. Bolivia has cut off its ties with Israel. Perhaps embarrassed by being shown up by countries 10,000 miles away, Jordan, which borders Palestine, announced it was recalling its ambassador. Not breaking diplomatic ties, not suspending its peace treaty, not expelling the U.S. military forces that have been sent to Jordan to shield Israel from regional military intervention. This is less than the minimum, but it is what Jordan must think will somehow satisfy the boiling rage of its own population at seeing the slaughter in Gaza. Today, there were reports that Bahrain recalled its ambassador and reportedly broke economic relations with Israel. Bahrain is one of the signatories of the so-called Abraham Accords, the American brokered normalization agreements between Tel Aviv and various Arab dictatorships that were intended to bury the Palestinian cause. But there has been no statement from Bahrain's government, and Israel insists its ties with the country are stable. None of this is enough, especially after 26 days of televised slaughter. Turkey, which was willing to spend billions on the American project of overthrowing the government of Syria, has done nothing at all, despite the fiery speeches of its leader. And though Russia and China have taken sound positions, these have not translated into much action. Within the United States, we're seeing dissent and protests rise, such as the inspiring disruptions of uh, Anthony Blinken as he made the case for even more uh, aid for Ukraine uh, on Capitol Hill a few days ago. To illustrate, uh, oh, we, well, we can actually take a look at that. Distinguished members of the Appropriations Committee, thank you for this opportunity to testify before you today. aggression against Ukraine, not in the face of an intensifying strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. If the witness will suspend, and I ask that everyone again respect this hearing, we will suspend until the room is clear. I think it takes real psychopathy to be able to sit there so stony-faced when people are calling for an end to the mass slaughter of children, children like uh, Tony Blinkens, who were seen later in the day uh, going out trick-or-treating with their father, dressed up as uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. 
But to illustrate how out of touch the pro-genocide American ruling class is, consider that two-thirds of Americans support a ceasefire in Gaza, according to a Data for Progress poll published on October 20th. Remarkably, that included more than half of all Republicans and 80% of supporters of Biden's Democratic Party. What must the numbers be like today after another 12 days of Joe Biden's genocide? The only country that has put its money where its mouth is, is Yemen, whose Houthi government fired missiles towards Israel in solidarity with the Palestinians. That's what the Western governments would normally call humanitarian intervention. All of this is profoundly distressing, but we must remember this. Israeli and American plans for the region and for Palestine fail much more often than they succeed. The fate and future of Palestine will not be written by the psychopathic war criminals in the White House, State Department, and in the military bunkers deep under Tel Aviv, but by the Palestinian people themselves and by us, all of us, who must continue to protest, to demand everywhere and anywhere we can stop the genocide. Thank you for that, Ali Abunima. He's our executive director here at the Electronic Intifada. Uh, we are now going to bring in um, uh, our, our friend Khada Ajil. She's a third generation Palestinian refugee from Beit Daras. She's a visiting professor in political science at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Uh, Israeli airstrikes have killed 36 members her family in Khan Yunus. Uh, Ghada is joined by her daughter Raida, who lived in Gaza from 2021 until just this past summer. Uh, Ghada, you wrote this piece in The Guardian um, just yesterday, uh, and the opening lines are, my family home was supposed to be in the safe zone in southern Gaza, but last week the bombs came anyway, without warning. Um, can you introduce yourself and your daughter and, uh, and, and tell us about your family and, and what happened? Well, thank you, Nora. Um, my name is Rada, and I am a third-generation Palestinian refugee. Um, my parents and grandparents have lived in Bedaras, now a village that is no more on the map. It has been depopulated, destroyed, during 1948, Nakba. My family, my parents, grandparents, has made the journey from Beit Daras to Sawafir, to Hamama, to Izdud, to Jabalia, to Gaza, to end in Khan Yunis camp, waiting for the day in which they will be returned to their home. 75 years now, the family has been waiting. Um, it's seems like the history repeats itself because my sister in Gaza City have been, you know, under this shelling constant bombardment and under the direction or following the direction to move to safe area, she moved from Gaza City to the south to my home in the refugee camp. And there that my the granddaughter of my sister has been killed, murdered, intentionally and willfully, I would say. Together with, I reported 35 of my family, but now I get the news that it's 45. 
It has been around 10 o'clock in the morning on October 26th that an earthquake hit my camp. The sound of the bombs has been terrifying. Actually, all the people I talked to who have, you know, survived and lived the other attacks on Gaza, they said this is unprecedented. Probably six, seven missiles or heavy bombs just landed on the home. So you could imagine a bomb, then people would start to run or try, you know, to, to save their lives, and then another bomb, and then another bomb. So six or seven according to them. So it's, it's all is gone. Naif Abu Shamala, this is just across my home. 35 of the, actually, well, from Naif, I think 20, and from the other home, um, Abu Said family, oh, three generations has been wiped out. And there has been the shop um, underneath the house that people has been, you know, buying stuff for their families, necessary things. So, again, gone. And still the owner of the shop, Assad, I just learned this morning, is still under the rubble. So it's really horror being belief. You cannot try to comprehend, you know, the devastation of the people there and of us here living this trauma, it has if, if the Israeli occupying forces and the apartheid states want to make the pain collective, every single Palestinian, every generation inside occupied Palestine or in the diaspora, on the refugee camp, but to feel it. They bomb these homes. People are still mourning. People are still digging the rubble, trying to recover the body of Assad. And so, you know, leading this epic resistance, going to bakery, get, you know, bread, get water, go um, try to bring a smile to the faces of the children. It's really that every minute you just see the pain, but you see the resistance. You see the hope. And this is what I always say. They might have dropped thousands, tons of bombs, as Ali Abu Nama has mentioned, twice like Hiroshima on this dot, but they would never be able to wipe out our dedication for freedom, for justice. And, um, you know, it's really difficult sometimes to, to find the word amid this situation, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, of course. And Haida, um you were just there. Uh, with your family and and colleagues, can you talk about uh, yeah, what um, you're going through as well? Well, actually, right now, as a Palestinian uh, living in the diaspora, um, I think it's the hardest thing being away from your homeland and being away from your people, particularly when they are your family and your loved ones. Um, the ongoing situation there is, is really just a source of, of great sorrow and pain that brings every day a new story to, to our home. Um, whether it's a new detail of sufferings from our own home that was lost in Zahra when it, it was completely bombarded, 24 residential buildings, each compromising of four, um, uh, four apartments, four, five levels, you're talking about mass, mass destruction of 
people's homes. Now we're talking over 50% of Gaza. Um, and then it just carries on with, with more devastating news. Um, on October 25th, my aunt's house, or oh, sorry, October 24th, my aunt's house from my dad's side, in Hayy al-Amal and Khan Yunus, was hit um, and a whole square of, of many homes, three of them were my dad's family's side. Uh, what we know were at least 50. What was pulled out were 35. The rest are still under the rubble. Two days later, the, the Abu Shammala uh, massacre. Um, you know, we can't keep up with the martyrs. Every day it's a new list. It's somebody that you know. It's somebody that you've met. Um, it's somebody that touched you. It touched your life. Julia, my niece, I lived there for a year and a half, and I volunteered with uh, a lot of human rights uh, and, and youth um, organizations and NGOs. And I lived at my aunt's house, and every day I came home to Julia, every day. I saw every single little step that, you know, she took into her development of two and a half years. And Julia is just one of almost 4,000 kids now, little angels that are going. And, you know, you, you recall and you say, Children, innocent, they don't have anything to do with war or they don't know anything that, that is beyond their home, beyond the embrace of their mother. And Julia died in her mother's arms. And, you know, you, we have a belief in, in Islam that if God has chosen these people to go as martyrs, then they go, they are the children, they will, they will be uplifted with the least amount of pain. But it's the people that are left behind. It's the people that now you're looking are injured and, and don't have the, the right, you know, humanitarian aid reaching them. Um, we're talking about not just water and food. We're talking about diseases. We're talking about infections. We're talking about amputations. We're talking about, you know, doctors that are using vinegar instead of, of, of medical supplies because they are running out. We're talking about a completely collapsing system. And it is collapsed because so many hospitals are closing every day we're here. Yesterday, doctors, instead of pleading to the international community, decided to plead to the Gazan community. They were asking if anybody has a liter of gasoline, please bring it to the hospital, because if we don't have, anything will help. People are using oil for their cars just to get through. Then two days ago, we see some of the cars that are going to Salah al-Din. Every day I took the, that road to Salah al-Din from Khan Yunus to Gaza. And to see a tank there, and it deliberately targeted that car, and deliberately targeted the bus after with people, UN, UNRWA, buses that have been taking people from point A to point B also targeted. Israel is above the law. It's above international human law. It's decided to go ahead with every single war politics and policies that it wants to do, and it knows that nobody can stop it. I, I mean, I talked to my friends when I was in the airport. I called my friend Shayma, and she's telling me, I'm so sorry, I, I missed your call last night. I literally just escaped death. Shayma Shawa, her dad, Nabil Shawa, is now volunteering at Al-Aqsa Hospital every day in, in Tal al-Hawa. And the, the horrors that she tells me that are happening in, in, in the hospitals. But despite that, she's still apologizing to me for not answering my call while bombs were falling on her house. Four bombs fell on her house. Her and her uncle's family miraculously got out of, of that house. We talk about my friend Lina and Dream, who I posted something on social media, 21 bodies in, in, in body bags 
And they said, that's my family. That's 21 of our close family. My friend today, Dana, Dana Abu'id, from Jabalia refugee camp, 80 of her family. We're talking massive, I mean, we say we are not numbered, but when we actually come down to it and we're talking about numbers, it's like how do you fathom such amounts of people gone from under your, I mean, you, you don't, you can't, you can't understand it. And not only that, now you start wondering, if I go back to Gaza, what is left? What will be left? Who will be left? Okay, we're mourning our family one day, we're mourning our family the next day, then we're mourning our friends' families the next day, and then we're mourning our losses every single day, we're mourning a loss. But at some point, everybody in Gaza is our family. Everybody is our bloodline. Everybody is our community. And you start wondering, what else needs to be said? What else needs to be shown? What else needs to be conveyed to these politicians? that are sitting on seats, powerful seats. Yeah, I mean, really words are, are, are starting to run dry. My friends, Matez and, and Hint, they're journalists on the ground. Every day, they are appealing to the international community, asking for protection, showing the day in the day life. Sorry, I don't want to take much more of, of the time, but yeah, I mean, horror being belief, probably that's, yeah. that's, you know, I'm, yeah. yeah. I, I keep saying because it is impossible for us to comprehend. I mean, uh, it's the scale, the scale of the, the genocide. I don't know a single person in Gaza or from Gaza that I have spoken to that has not lost I'm not talking about one, two, three friends or family. Dozens, dozens. Gaza is a small community. It's 2.3 million people. It's a small territory. Now we're talking about close to 10,000 people. And, you know, many are under the rubble. That mm -hmm. means four out of every thousand people in Gaza have been killed. It, it won't be long if this doesn't stop that we get to 1% of the population, one in every hundred that's being killed. And we're not, and the number of injured is always multiples of the number killed. And I just keep saying the only thing it reminds me of is, you know, all our lives we hear these stories of Holocaust survivors who will say, you know, I'm the only person left from my family. I lost. Uh, you know, everyone on my mother's side, everyone on my father's side, I was the only survivor or my father was the only survivor. This is what I'm now hearing from people uh, in Gaza. Uh, yeah. Just entire families wiped out. And you, you say that uh, what more can we say or what more can we show? They know what's happening and they're doing this to us deliberately. And that's the mm -hmm. part that is really unbearable it's not that it's not that they're not educated or they can't see they know and and what they're doing instead is saying what kind of spin can we put on this what kind of public relations can we do to distract people from this deliberate slaughter that that we're doing and that is just mm -hmm. the thing that is mm -hmm. is impossible to bear mm -hmm. it's a continuation really of, of just dehumanization and, and desensitization of, of Palestinian lives lost. Um, 
you know, uh, there's a famous poem, My Body is a TV Massacre. Palestinian bodies are becoming a TV Massacre. And every day they're coming and, and showing you, um, you know, imagine for a moment living in a place where every breath feels like a struggle, where fear and uncertainty are your constant companion, where basic necessities like food, like water, like electricity are, are scarce. You're talking about the, the blackouts. Yesterday, again, they put Gaza on a, on a blackout, a complete blackout. We couldn't reach anybody. Um, my uncle, my uncle had a, a heart stroke yesterday, two days ago, from the situation that's happening. And really, you look back, and this is history playing again. My grandfather, after he was expelled from, from Sawafir, and he was living in the tents in, in Khan Yunis, and he looked and he had all these lands, acres and acres of land, and he saw his situation now in Gaza, living on, 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 you know, on Erwa base, or at the time it wasn't even on Erwa, it was the Quakers. And he had a, a stroke, he had a stroke, a, a brain stroke, and he was paralyzed for, for the rest of, of the time that he was there. Now my uncle is living that time again. And we're living the, the Nakba times again, seeing the tents come up in Khan Yunus. It's surreal. It's surreal. Yeah, it's like it's, the history is repeating itself. Like I think some of the people told me, I think we, um, we're living in October 2023 to wake up to think ourselves we are in October 1948. Mm -hmm. It's it's really horror being believed with all the meaning of the word. Every single soul is feeling it at the moment. And still this cry for stopping the genocide that everyone is suspecting, including these newspapers when we want to use the term. Now, the UN um, officials, lawyers, experts, human rights uh, have, you know, being not only resigning, but saying that's exactly match the textbook of the definition of genocide. It is all these statements made by the Israeli politicians, military, cabinets, government, intellectuals, journalists. I mean, those people who are inflicting this death on Gaza, children, they have been receiving these messages from the children at school probably 20 years um, ago, according to Chris McGreely in The Guardian, kill the Arabs. Those the children now are in these tanks killing the Arabs. This is, this is the dehumanization of the Palestinian, the dehumanization of everything Palestinian. So Hamas-run hospital, Hamas-run school, Hamas-run orphanage, as, you know, this justification to go ahead. All these statements we hear in, by politicians, not only the Israelis, but also the Western leaders. Mr. Biden, suspecting all these numbers, and if they are dead, they must be terrorists. This is really unbelievable how this complicity, how this bankruptcy of the West, Gaza is the graveyard of international law, graveyard of Western morality, shame on the world. And you know, even here, when we try, you know, to give some advices for Shaima Shawa, when their home has been bombed, as a friend, we said, take our home in Zahra. I am happy she did not, because all my neighbors, all my family, even who live in Zahra, ended in streets. You talk about thousands of people attracted. This is a starvation. This is those glass when he said we're not going to.
um, starve them. We're going to put them on a diet. They now discovered after 16 years of the inhumane blockade, they cannot put an end of this willingness for freedom, for dignity. So now the plan of annihilation, of genocide, of expulsion, of continuing the unfinished project of Nakba, this is what we see. It. You know, my grandmother has been always telling me, um, whenever we have a generation, they come and kill it. 1956, 1967, 1987, 1994, 2000. Actually, I was saying, what she said, now when I just put every few years this intentional killing of the children, it is the history. And you know what? When we lost our home in Zahra, you know, even a smaller place that have all the memories. We don't have any memories in Bedaras because my family has been expelled, everything destroyed. So all the memories we built in the past 40 or 50 years, the photograph, the first step of my daughter, the painting that my brother-in-law gifted us, my hard-earned certificates, every single thing of a home, a warm home, is gone. All what you held dear, this is why I say they want this, um, I would say loss to be collective and felt and continue. So when my grandmother was telling me how they destroyed the home, and then in 1970s, the Israelis started to let Palestinian refugees visit their villages, and she asked him, will you go and visit your home? He said, I would die, because my home is my flesh, is my sweat, is my blood. It is the broken person, person you see now. You know now, if my grandfather is alive, I would tell him there is more, you know, or a worse thing, or painful thing, not being able to walk in the ruins of your home, but to watch it streamed, live streamed on TV, and you, you know, feel this powerlessness. And you said, it's okay, the home could be compensated. We can build. But then, 24th of October, my husband's sister, all her children, grandchildren, and grand-grandchildren, three generations wiped out, gone. And then on 26th of October, my family, 35, 40, 40, again, numbers. We are not numbers. I mean, as Gaida said, it's going to be so difficult to get to Khan Yunus, and I am not received by Aisha and Naif and their wife. The minute I step in the camp, all the camp come to congratulate us and hug us and say, how are you, and all of that. And every single day they would share whatever they cooked. This hospitality, generosity, the richness of the Palestinian people, no one ever could understand. Yeah. They are the talented, yeah. the gifted, yeah. the most beautiful souls. That Canada are has a magic about it. Really. Yeah, I, mean, I left Canada 2021 because after the, the aggression um, that happened in 2021, I chose I wanted to go see my uncles. I wanted to see my family. I wanted to see Gaza. I wanted to spend time. Life here will pass by you so quick and you won't feel the time go by. And when I went there, really, I understood what it means to to feel the magic of Gaza, to feel the magic of people. Yani, Gaza is much more developed than a lot of places here in Canada. 
And people are shocked by that. We have some of the best restaurants, some of the best food, some of the nicest views on the beach front. We have a crazy amount of talent. I've worked with so many of the youth that actually are out there. Their work is outsourced to the world because of how talented they are. And these are young people that will speak English, French, German, and they've never stepped a foot outside of Gaza. Fluent. Gazans have a love for life. Palestinians have a love for life. It's not what we only see on TVs, and I know we've gotten used to seeing these bodies come time and again, but they just want to live. They want the freedom. They want to be able to travel. They want to be able to study outside. They want, And that's their right. That's one of the most basic human rights. And this is we should have. Yeah, yeah. So this concept of denial for all these youth, actually when I look again at statistics, 47% of Gaza are children, 55 are under the age of 21, and I go every summer, I see these talented people, and you see this occupation, mastering the land, the you know, the sea, the air. You cannot put a step outside Gaza. You can, we have the best beaches, Mediterranean. You cannot fish. You know, people even... Now, people talk a lot about this genocide, but take me as an example. I finished a high school in 1988 or 89. When I tell the people here that I was denied the right to go to university, they say outside. I said, no, no, in Gaza. They said, what, for a, for a few months, your family doesn't have money? I said, no, because Israel, the apartheid state, have decided to close all the universities in Gaza for six years. So 18,000 students my age at that point of time were denied. Multiply it with six years. You know, I was living next to the beach because I live in Khanunis camp. The beach is like 10 minutes from my home, walking. Mm -hmm. And I won't be able to go because of the settlements. It's only for Jewish Jewish only. You know, at the checkpoint in Gaza, and this now resonates with what is happening in, in West Bank, when we have been held on the checkpoint in ambulances, while my husband, nephew, has been bleeding, and they would stop the checkpoint so that they allow the cars of tomatoes and cucumbers to be sent from Gosh Gatif illegal colonies to inside Palestine or Israel. This is you discover that you're not worthless. Your life doesn't matter. But Palestinian life matters. And you see this, you know, pattern of dehumanization, of cancer, of demographic bomb, of a human animal. Let them go to the hill. Level them off. There is no civilian in Gaza. This is the same discourse and rhetoric that has been used for slavery, for enslavement, for the ethnic cleansing here in Canada and all the settler colonial states. Mm -hmm. This is a pattern, and Israel now doing it, sadly, unfortunately, with the full complicity of the Western leaders who talk about human rights. And every expert say, that matches the text. But they said, no, 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 no. It's only, it's the the story of the occupying power. And this is sometimes what hits you as intellectual. It's really an insult to our intellect to accept, to accept, not to investigate, but to accept the discourse of the Israeli occupying power to start the narrative and then carry on. That's what's the most 
you know, horrible thing to be here in diaspora, watch life because we are glued to TVs and we see these massacre and what is reaching this world, probably 1% of what we watch here at our home. And not only that, to live the dehumanization of the media here and this ignorance, this complicity and this powerlessness. And you know what, if I want to end, we still get the hope from the people. This morning I called my uncle and he has two daughters who finished medicine from Egypt and now they are in the UN schools and he said Noor today have seen probably hundreds of patients but you know she writes these prescriptions but where to get the medicine. People are sharing now the diabetes pills, the blood pressure. You see this epic of you know solidarity, of cooperation, of one body. Mm -hmm. And this is what gives you hope. People still go bury the bodies, go to hospital, give water for the doctors or some meals. They go and, you know, um, volunteer with each other. It's really an epic. And this is what I always say, this will, this hope, this will, no bomb would be able, would be able to wipe out our dedication for our rights, our dignity, full equality, ending of this blockade, return. I mean, when they talk now all this narrative about what is happening, about what is going to be the situation after these massacre and genocide. Um, again, the same colonial narrative, because they want to impose all of these um, uh, I would say uh, plans, but as Ali said, it failed everywhere. Why it would succeed in Palestine? It wouldn't, it hasn't, and it won't. Father Ajil and Raida Hamdan, we want to thank you for being with us today on just. Um, the, you know, the, uh, as as you said, that these are all unspeakable times um, for you and your family and your community and your loved ones um, and for all of us um, so far away in you know across the world and 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 watching this uh, on our screens and getting messages from our friends and um, so we we are with you. Um, we're all holding each other in this, and um, I just want to thank you both again for being with us. We'll have you back on again. Khada Ajil, she is a an academic um, a visiting professor in political science at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, and uh, your daughter, Raida Hamdan. Both of you, thank you so much for being with us thank today. You. Th- thank you. And I, I won't say stay strong because it's hard for us to stay strong. What yeah. I will say is hold each other and support each other because that's really all we can do. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for being here. Um, oh, uh, you are... Um, listening and watching uh, the Electronic Intifada uh, for our November 2nd live stream. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima, Asa Lynn Stanley, and John Elmer. In a few minutes, um, we're going to go to a video from one of our friends in Gaza, uh, Khalil Abu Shamala. But first, we wanted to bring on someone who needs uh, barely an introduction, Roger Waters. 
um, activist, musician, icon, joining us from Rio in Brazil. Uh, Roger, thank you so much for taking some time out to be with us today on the Electronic Intifada live stream. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Hi, Roger. Thank you. Not at all, Ali. Good to see you and Asa and all of you. Wow. Well, that's obviously moving beyond belief to hear those um, ladies from uh, Alberta, from the diaspora, talking to us. Yeah. We, in this room, five of us now here together, we are part of the body that they were talking about. And we are not alone. There are billions of us all over the globe. We've seen parts of the body that is Palestine, that is the heart and soul of that wonderful country. And they're demonstrating in huge, huge numbers all over the world to somehow attempt to get our leaders to start seeing what's going on in a realistic way. Because at the moment, they are living in cloud cuckoo land. And we can all see it. Not just those ladies we were just listening to, not just the five of us sitting here in this studio, but billions of us all over the world. So we all feel a similar extraordinary frustration about watching this genocide in Gaza. And in fact, the slow genocide that's been going on since 1948, this didn't start on October the 7th, as we all know, or in 21, or in 2019, or in 2014, when Max Blumenthal, our friend, you know, wrote 51 days. Or, it, no, it started back in the 19th century, and then obviously, just after the war, and in 1947, when the first massacres took place um, at Deir and Tatur and the other places that are now becoming, just becoming now, we're beginning to see documentary evidence and admissions from old men who were in the IDF or who were in the Stern Gang or the Ergen Gang or whoever it was back in those days. Yesterday, I w I'm going to ramble because... We, ha we, not, we have not yet be talked about the future, okay? There was a little bit, there was just a vague mention of what happens after this. If there is an after this, it's quite possible that the demented Joe Biden and the demented Netanyahu and the other dementedly and Rishi Sunak and Macron and all the other leaders of the Western world, it is possible that they are willingly driving the rest of us, who they assume to be lemmings, over the cliff into Armageddon. All right? Because an awful lot of this can be laid at the door of a fanatical belief in God. The Christian fascists in the United States are slavering for Israel to kill all the Palestinians and survivors of state so that... Armageddon can happen and Jesus will come back and take them all by the hand and they'll go to heaven and all the Jews will burn in hell forever and blah, 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 blah. So we should never forget that this heinous philosophy, religious philosophy, 
is somewhere at the bottom of all of this. Roger. Sorry, go on. No, I think bringing up the the sort of power of um, Christian Zionism as as a sort of a and, and Christian nationalism in the United States is one of the drivers for this. I know I've seen that in different parts of the country where you'll see um, Israeli flags up on on, uh, on churches. Uh, it sort of underscores that for me. But you know, now the the I don't know if we can we we have the clip of of you at your concert uh, in Brazil, and I don't know if you've done this in other places. We showed it the other day, but I think it will be good to show it again. Putting up on stage, on screen, the urgent call, stop the genocide, which is the most urgent thing. And I it just is- want I wanted to ask you. Um, what you're in Brazil right now I don't know which other countries you're going through through with the tour um forgive me I have not looked at your tour schedule with everything going on but we're but what what's the response you're getting there I mean I I don't know if you you heard my remarks earlier but here in the United States two-thirds of people two-thirds want a ceasefire and that includes 80% of Democrats and a majority of Republicans. And that was 10 days ago before we even saw the worst of this. So that's in the US, most people want to ceasefire. Uh, and our politicians are completely in, on another planet. What are you seeing in your travels? What was the response at your, at your concerts? You know, it's when you're when you're playing in a football stadium and there's forty or fifty thousand people stretched out in front. It's very and you're wearing in ears to hear the music that you're playing and what. It's very difficult to actually gauge the response that is out there. You know, um, but my my gut feeling is that, and I promise you this: when we put up "Stop the Genocide." on four thirty-foot square, very very bright LEDs screens while i'm singing lay down jerusalem lay your burden down and which is a song that i wrote in 2015 so it's quite a new song that's only eight years old but nevertheless as you know ali i've been banging this drum for at least 20 years now so and i was a latecomer to the party but um the choir i was speaking about there it's billions that's i'm quite certain that the majority of the people i'm in sao paulo by the way rio was two nights ago porto Alegre was last night i'm in sao paulo and so so yeah it's i think that you on election um you know intifada are beginning to win yeah there's there's that's what our stage looks like every night in the middle of the, the only thing is that in the song In the Flesh that I do at the beginning, where I was almost banned from doing concerts in Germany earlier this year because I was doing a satirical takeoff of exactly the kind of Nazi tyranny. The appetite. Um, so we've changed In the Flesh a bit. I now do it in a wheelchair, in a straitjacket, you know, because that's where they want me, actually. They want me in a straitjacket. <laughs> I can't perform, so that's what I do. But 
the opening bars are prison bars on those four big screens that you saw. And behind the prison bars are the most up-to-date, horrific scenes from the bombing of Gaza that I can find. And we're changing them and updating them all the time. So okay. the opening of that is there every night on the screens. Well, we've been doing this, though, for, for years. I was doing this all through the Us and Them tour in 2008. And this, this is not a drill tour. I dropped, uh, Roger. Hang on, just let me finish something. Because yeah. I got uh, off the point what we're going to do now. Because this is, this is fundamentally important because of the Christian right and because of uh, their desire for the end of time. You know, Joe Biden probably has wet dreams about the end of times. And at night, probably, he actually probably does. Because that's what we're, he's driving us to. What should happen? What sh I'll tell you what should happen. The Israelis, the Israeli government, not the people. Have you seen the videos of the Israeli police beating up Orthodox Jewish men with their, you know, cappers and their ringlets? Beating them up in the street for saying, we don't believe in massacring our neighbors. It's against all, everything that Judaism stands for. Bang! They just smashed them to bits for even saying that it's against their religion to be massacring people. Anyway, I'm losing my thread. No, I'm not. Here we go. Yeah. Israel clearly is a completely failed state. They've been having a go at it since 1946, and it is clearly absolute, total, crazed failure. If God did choose them, God has forsaken them now. Look what they've become. Look what they are doing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I confess I'm an atheist, but if there is a God, he could be doing nothing now but saying, not in my name. Netanyahu and the rest of you, not in God's name. How dare you take my name in vain like this? So they would have to then say, look, we're sorry. It's been completely wrong since 1947-48. We're sorry. We get it. This is obviously, we're going to stop doing that now. Yes, please. Can we please stay here when the Holy Land becomes one united democratic state, a new state with equal human rights for all of the people who live there, all the Arabs and all the Jews and all the Christians and anybody else who wants to come and treat each other like human beings and cooperate and bring up their children and, and, and encourage the universities and encourage all this great talent that we saw your previous speakers talk about. That is the future. All right, I've said it again. And, they, and of course, the Israeli lobby will be up in arms again explaining how I'm crazy and I should be in a straitjacket. Nobody should ever listen to a word that I say. Well, they're wrong because I speak at least one truth that might be a viable answer to all of this. And I'd love to see somebody debate this with a Joe Biden or this, because what, what this is all rhetorical nonsense. Sorry, Ali, I'll stop now. I, I tend to go on. <laughs> no, I, I, I have to say that was a, a tour de force and I couldn't agree more that 
That, you, you said let's talk about the future, and that is an absolutely beautiful vision, and the one we've been talking about for years, but the one that Israel is, is adamantly opposed to, and not just Israel, but the United States and Europe and everyone else. But Roger, what I want to ask you, and, and I mean, uh, by the way, perhaps Asa will read some of them out later, but the comments are, are just, people are just absolutely uh, in agreement with what you're saying and, and very appreciative as, as we are. But you alluded earlier about how your concerts were almost banned in Germany and how the Israel lobby calls you crazy. And, 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 and I have to say crazy is one of the nicer things they call you. That's almost <laughs> a compliment compared with, with some of what they say. But I get messages all the time from people saying, you know, I want to speak out but I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job or I'm afraid I'm going to face some sort of repercussions. Not everyone is a rock star, so not everyone can go up on stage and do what they want. Um, and, but my question is that there's a lot of rock stars, there's a lot of people with a great deal of power, whether it's cultural power or economic power or political power, who don't use that platform and that voice to speak out the way you are for Palestine, not just Palestine, but for other just causes. And I just want to ask you, as someone who probably hangs out with rock stars more than I do, why do you think that is? What, why, what, what is How stopping they? them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't hang out with rock stars. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know. I don't know what I mean. <laughs> I said probably. I said probably. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'll answer your question, though. Not all people who are in the music industry were lucky enough to have had my mum and dad. My father had the grace to die in a battle at Aprilia near Anzio in the bridgehead, fighting the Nazis in 1944. February the 18th, he died. Okay. And my mother, who was a young woman and was serving hot tea to people in bomb shelters all through the Blitz in London and had been on teacher training in Bradford and children in England. Can you still hear me? Yeah, there are. So it had become very left-wing. So, so that's huge for me that those politics were in my blood. But then I'll, I'll tell the story again. When I was 13 years old, one day my mother could see I was thinking about something. And, uh, and she said, Roger, come here. I'm going to give you some advice. Um, all through your life, you will be faced with knotty problems. These are the knotty problems, Daddy, that my fellow rock stars, as you like to call them, are facing. This is a knotty problem. I mean, it's very simple. We all know, those of us who've studied it know this. Okay, she said, when you do, this is what you do. You read, 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 read everything that you can about whatever it is. So in this case, it would be reading the history from the Nakba on through to and previous history. By all means, read the Balfour Declaration, but read the whole fucking letter, not just the first sentence. Read the bit about save that. It rights of the indigenous people, non-Jewish people already living there, which is the second. So 
at everything and not just the opinions you agree with, read all opinions. When you've done that, you've done all the heavy lifting, the hard work is over. Oh, really, mum, and what do I do? What's the next bit then? And she's, you do the right thing. Well, that's all I needed for my education. You know, yes, of course, I went on into university and blah and all of that. But that, oh, that is, if every child in the world had a parent who said that to them and they believed it, when, and that's what we all do, all of us here in this room and the billions of people all over the world who are going out in the streets, all of them waving Palestinian and flags and shouting free Palestine everywhere from Thailand Australia and all over South Africa huge movement 500,000 people in London the other day that's the biggest thing since we tried to stop George W. Bush Jr. from invading Iraq along with Tony Blair and the other miscreants and insane people who ought to be in the Fletcher Memorial home for tyrants and kings but that is another story all right, I finished again. Well, well I, <laughs> I, I see, I see uh, someone say, someone admonishing me for calling you a rock star in the comments and saying, Roger is in a class all of his own, and I, I can only agree with that. <laughs> well, um, uh, I don't know how much longer we've got, but I, thank you so much for having me on so that I could listen to that testimony from Canada as well. I have very close friends in the movement in Canada. In fact, I have close friends all over the world in this big family of ours of activists who actually believe in human rights because that's all this is about. It's all about Paris 1940. I once got a letter from Dionne Warwick, lovely singer, you know, and probably a lovely grandmother and a lovely this and a lovely that and how that. But she was, uh, she was um, having a go at me because um, she said I was trying to stop her doing a concert in Tel Aviv. I actually hadn't said a dicky bird. I had no idea she was going to Tel Aviv. But I'm glad she thought I was. And I wrote her a letter, and I haven't got it in front of me. But basically, I said, I've looked you up, Dion, right? In 1948, uh, you were eight, because you're five years older than me, or whatever. And you were living in a suburb of Chicago. Try and imagine this, Dion. There's a knock on the door, you open the door, and there's a bloke there in a sort of paramilitary uniform or whatever, and he pokes you in the chest with his, right, with his gun and says, Out! I beg your pardon. Out! Go on, there's the road. Go to Canada. What? We live here. My, this is my grandparents' house. You know where. I'm not telling you again. Out! And then your father comes round the corner and he says, what are you doing? Why are you pointing a gun at my daughter? Bang! And your father's dead on the floor. Dead, stone dead on the floor. Do I have to tell you again? Mm-hmm. And then grandma starts picking up a bit. And you get out, you leave your house and you go walking down the road in a state of total trauma because some fucking stranger has just shot your father and forced you to start walking towards Canada. And your life from then is the diaspora. You have no idea. You don't know why. You know, you have no... How would you feel? 
I'm asking you to not, and that's since you brought it up, I'm asking you to not cross a picket line that has been asked for by the whole Palestinian civil society. That is why I support the BDS movement, nonviolent protest movement against. Oh. Uh, looks like we're having some internet issues with Roger. Um, but uh, while we try to get him back on, um, let's go. We're, we're actually going to uh, have John and Ali up next um, to talk about just military analysis of what we're seeing. Um, but before that happens, uh, let's try to get Roger back on here. Oh, Roger, are you there? Roger, they're trying here. to shut you up again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I am here. Anyway, you get the point. You know, Dion, you have to be able to empathize with others. If you can't, you've got a serious bit of your humanity is missing. Joe Biden can't, okay? Rishi Sunak can't. Tony Blair can't. Well, I don't need to go on. The list is endless of people who cannot empathize with her. They can't put themselves in it, and neither can you, Dion. I was thinking yesterday about the end of Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice, a film most of you are too young to remember. But it was back, I don't know, in the early 70s. But the end of it is Dionne Warwick singing, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing that it's worth living for. That's the lyric, roughly. And so I sometimes think of Dionne and that song at the end of that film. It's got Elliot Gould and you other people in it. Um, yeah, well, that is. That says it all. What the world needs now. We, we have to be able to empathize with the Palestinian people and the Israeli people. Not, let's not forget those old rabbis with their... They're not dreadlocks. What are they called? Definitely not dreadlocks. Being beaten up by the police in old Jerusalem. They're beating up their own just for differing in their opinion of what God's intention is. You know, it's bizarre, obviously. But all we can do is go on trying to increase the size of the choir, telling the choir, we're with you. Every time you wave that flag on a demonstration in Kuala Lumpur or wherever it is, or Johannesburg or London or Toronto or Alberta or Edmonton or... or um, where George Floyd died, or anywhere. We are all with you. We are part of this choir. This choir is enormous, absolutely enormous. And eventually it will get through their thick heads that they cannot go against the people's will. All right? There are many, many, many more of us than there are of them. And they are wrong, and we are right. And together we all have to explain to the Israeli government that it's over. You have failed us. All right. You are now. You are now a terrible example of what can happen when supremacist ideologies take over our capacity to empathise with our fellow human beings. This is what happens, and it's fucking awful. And you are doing it. Stop doing it. So we need B 
billions of people to be there in the streets saying, stop the genocide now. I'm doing it every night in my own small way, on my little stage or whatever, and joining you folk here on, on, on whatever your, this podcast is called. And this is all we can do, but thank heavens that we're doing... Yeah, go on, Ali. You've got your finger up. Oh, no, but well, I, I just... I want to say... I know that I speak for many, many people in that choir all around the world who say thank you for using your voice and using your platform. And uh, that provides a lot of encouragement to other people that they can do the same because there is an effort to silence um, all of us on this issue and to make us too scared to talk about it. And I think the more people who speak out, the more courage that they have to speak out and the more normalized it becomes to speak out. So it's just Good. critically important that you're doing this, Roger, and we are very, very, very grateful for that uh, well, clarity and support. Let yeah. me just interject. I'm very grateful to Asa Win Stanley for writing his book, uh, The Weaponization of Anti-Semitism, because it's a huge help uh, to all of us to have a home like that that we can refer to oh, hey so you you have a copy behind you why don't you just show it for for, for people yeah this yeah. is a must read there you go yeah and thank you roger for your support you're not not at all you can send my cup <laughs> no but seriously thank you very much for um all your it's support. a great book it's a it's a must read. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I read um, I read our friend I read our friend Gideon Levy's piece, you know, from Harrods this morning. John Whitbeck sent it round in one of his and it, and the beginning of it is him talking about pulling terrorists from the rubble. And obviously his point is that when he pulls a terrorist from the rubble, it's three years old. Mm-hmm. Or it or it's eight months old and it's mm-hmm. dead as mud and covered in blood and what oh look another terrorist. Oh it's oh. chilling, but he he's a big part of the voice of the choir as well, as are so many wonderful Israelis. Jews, Israeli Jews. Part of this choir. And oh more power to you all. That's all. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. Thanks so much, Roger. We're going to let you go because we know you have uh, concerts to run <laughs> and perform. I concerts. I've got to eat eggs and bacon now. <laughs> well. It's even better. It's lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, no. Roger. Come Thank back. You. Come back soon. We'd yeah, love to have you back again soon. Thank you. That'd be wonderful. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much, Roger Waters. Uh, You are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada live stream podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima, Asa Winn-Stanley, and John Elmer. Um, We're going to go to a, uh, I think it's about a four-minute video message from one of our colleagues and friends in Gaza, Khalil Abu Shamala, a veteran human rights activist and um, uh, who's been trying to survive with his family uh, in Gaza. Uh, So let's go to that and then we'll be back with 
uh, some analysis from John. Still unbelievable that the international community continues silent. It is shameful that the international community and the world can watch what is going on in Gaza without taking any action to stop the genocide. 26 days of killings, infants, women, innocent people who are very, very innocent. The criteria that we know, it is common that any war happens, happens between two militants, armies. But here, the army just target the civilians who are living at homes without, without taking any action or dangerous to, uh, towards the Israel soldiers. What is the reason? What is the reason behind bombing them by the F-16 and by the heavy explosive who kills them while they are at homes? I don't know. I, I cannot. I cannot. I cannot understand or or find any justification for the people who cannot imagine the hundred thousands of Palestinians in Gaza who enforced to leave their homes and they go to schools. You and schools, hospitals. Tent city in Khanyun, south of, of Gaza, without the minimum condition of, of, of life. Do they know that these people, most of them are from the very poor families? More than 200 of my family have been killed, including very, very close relatives. I could not even say sorry for my relatives, my aunt, my cousin, my uncle, because I am in Khan Yunis and some of them in Rafah and others in middle camps and others from north of, of Gaza. And this is not the a special case. It is the case of all the Gazans nowadays. I'm not sure if the people know how, what is the number of people who were killed. How many people the international community and the world need un, to be killed until they, they move and intervene and raise their voice and pressure Israel to stop the continued killings against the civilians in Gaza. The world should know that we are human beings. We are human beings. We have dreams. We have, we have thoughts of the future for a better future. Can anybody ask why this number of civilians are killed during the, the, the time, during the day, uh, every moment? Can anybody tell us why the infants, the kids, think of death every time 
every moment and they are waiting for death and at any time what is happening there here that the the kids the future the men and women of the future believe that the world look at them as some some parts of out of the the the, the earth and and the, the the human beings i don't think that they will forgive or tolerate and i think it is the responsibility of everybody to raise the, his voice her voice to say stop it is enough believe me it is enough it is enough what is happening is out of any body any human being imagination again that's our friend and colleague Khalil Abu Shamala in Gaza um, and you know since uh, there has been internet blackouts uh, and more communications outages throughout Gaza. Uh, it's really important that we um, are able to receive these kinds of messages and um, to, to be able to play them here on the live stream. So we really appreciate our colleagues who are doing uh, just extraordinary um, things. Uh, while they are trying to keep their family safe from Israel. I, I want to say, Nora, that um, while we've been uh, on this uh, live stream, I've been getting messages from some of our friends in Gaza. Uh, and as you mentioned, the Internet goes in and out. It's often hours before you get a reply, but uh, yeah. from... Uh, from our friend Rifat, uh, he talked about who, who we've had on the show, Rifat Al-Arir, who many many of us know and love, um, a wonderful uh, teacher, educator, writer, and um, he says that there's very terrifying explosions uh, right near where, where they are now, and people are in the hallway of the building just trying to get away from the windows, because even if your building is not hit, the shrapnel and the flying glass and the flying stone um, is capable of, of killing people. Um, another one of the electronics, uh, electronic intifadas uh, writers, Ahmed Dremli, um, who messaged me just a little while ago, he said, I'm sick. Uh, my lungs are tired. I'm coughing since the morning. They bombed four houses in the same neighborhood uh, near uh, my house. And that's pretty much how it is all the time when you can even get through from, to people. And um, it's simply an astonishing and horrifying scale of uh, killing. And I, I also want to give an update uh, from our friend Ahmed Aburtema. Um, the, the writer who um, and the founder of the Great March of Return, who uh, is recovering. Uh, he's still in hospital, but he uh, is is recovering. He's he's lucky, luckily, able to get treatment. Uh, but he um, 
so many people in Gaza is devastated by the loss of his own son, Abdullah, who was 13 years old and who was right next to him when their house was bombed. Uh, and um, Ahmed sent us a piece this morning from Gaza that we will be publishing at the Electronic Intifada telling um, his story and what happened. And uh, I also just want to give a shout out to, you know, it's incredible to me that people in Gaza, uh, people like uh, Khalil, who we just heard from, his daughter Noor wrote one the most beautiful piece I can imagine from Gaza. I don't know uh, if we're able to to show that I hadn't uh, given Tamara behind the scenes any advance notice, but um, we, we, uh, it's astonishing to me that people in Gaza continue to write, continue to get their message to us by any means they can, whether it's a WhatsApp message or a text message or a voice message, and they say, please transcribe this, because they want the world to hear them. And one of the one of the messages that we hear constantly, and it's a terrible message for anyone to have to say, is we don't want to die in silence. We don't want to be forgotten. We don't want to die and nobody knows. And so uh, I just want to give a shout out. And I just want to be clear that we're not saying to anyone in Gaza, we want you to write or we want you to go out. Uh, on the contrary, we just, we say to all our, our writers and contributors, take care of yourself, take care of your family. That's all we want you to do. But they continue to send these absolutely amazing uh, pieces and reports um, because they want the world to know. So I want to encourage everyone who's on this stream to go to the Electronic Intifada to find some of these articles by people in Gaza and, uh, you know, most of them on our front page and share them with your friends and family. Share them with the people who are repeating what they're hearing on CNN or the BBC or the CBC or NPR and say, just read this by someone who's actually in Gaza right now. And um, that's a way for us all to multiply and uh, amplify their voices. Yeah. And Tamara, keep that page up for, for a moment. And I want to bring John in by um, segueing into some of the work that he and uh, our senior editor, Maureen Murphy, have been up to. If you hit that updates button right at the top of the Electronic Intifada page, if you're on the, um, you know, a, a computer version, um, you can now see a scroll of... Um, news from uh, day by day. We're updating it constantly uh, with links, with uh, short bits of analyses, with multimedia. We have photos, we have uh, uh, videos and, and links to the SoundCloud of these podcasts. So please go to your website, uh, bookmark the updates page, uh, and that is basically our own internal kind of clearinghouse for the most significant updates of the day as as this genocide uh, grinds on. And so with that, I want to bring in uh, our contributing editor, John Elmer. John, um, talk about the last, you know, I mean, we saw three strikes 
in Khan Yunus over a period of 48 hours, uh, sorry, of Jabalia refugee camp over a period of 48 hours. Um, what is the current status of Israel's uh, ground invasion up to this point? What can you tell us? Yeah, well, that live updates page is uh, our effort to save everybody's eyeballs from the Western media and to find a place where you can go and get some sane coverage of what's going on. So, um, yeah, check that out. Um, yeah, I mean, what we saw in Jabalia the other day was just brutal. And I think if that's um, an indication of the way that Israel is going to fight this ground operation, I think it's really terrifying uh, for people living there. I mean, we clearly saw... Um, thousands of people. I mean, just in the media from that uh, strike, you could see thousands of people that had, had come around to to help. And I mean, Hara talked about it. Um, these are like double tap strikes where they hit a second time when the rescuers are there. I mean, CNN and UNICEF, uh, I mean, people that are not normally speaking about it, um, you know, CNN talked about children carrying children from that bomb site. And then the Israelis tell us that uh, that's a legitimate target. They call it a high value target. They say that uh, a commander, I mean, the main reason was resistance. Two soldiers from the Gavadi brigades were killed. Um, and as we've said before, that's what Israel does. They pull back and then they massacre the civilian population instead of fighting face to face with the fighters that are defending Gaza. So people run to the scene of that devastating attack, and then they get hit with the second, third, fourth, fifth. There was eight missiles on that one house. Um, that's a brutal way to fight war. And if, um, if that's an indication, Jabalia is really the first um, densely populated area. We can see from the footage that we've seen from Kassam videos, just the aerial footage from their drones, that the north has been wasted. They've uh, destroyed Beit Lahia uh, to a large degree. Um, they've destroyed Beit Hanun, and those are the two main axes in the north that the Israelis have moved in on, and they've gotten fierce resistance uh, all through the north. Um, and then, so the Jabalia camp was kind of the first time that they would have gotten into um, like actual urban warfare, not just moving through fields or demolished houses. And the first thing that they do is massacre 200 civilians um, with, you know, scores more trapped under the rubble um, that they don't count in the death toll. They're not counting people in the rubble in the death toll. So it's actually higher than we often talk about. Um, and the Israelis are talking about this as success. They actually showed on the Israeli Air Force Twitter feed the bombing of Jabalia, the civilian homes, 20 houses collapsed on top of people. And the Israelis call that a high-value target, which they believe if they're killing a commander of the Qassam Brigades from Jabalia, that that legitimates um, the massacre of civilians, which is really remarkable, of course, only a few weeks removed from them telling us that the Qassam Brigades attacking military bases uh, in the south and having civilians killed was some kind of 
unparalleled crime that, that they can't even describe to us because it's so awful. But isn't the Riyadh military base uh, that houses the Gaza command, isn't that a high value target? Wouldn't If we talk about the rules of engagement that Israel's using, is that not a high value target? It's certainly a higher value target than the Jabalia central commander of the Qassam brigades, all due respect. You're talking about overrunning the most important base, uh, besieging the Gaza Strip. So it's just obvious. I mean, we obviously it's hypocrisy. Um, but but if we use those rules of engagement, um, the justification for this genocide in Gaza was the targeting of civilians. There was no word about a high value target. In fact, they've called every soldier, uh, every security force in the settlements, every police officer. The BBC still says 1,400 civilians. Um, but when we look at the rules of engagement in Jabalia, um, the Israelis just straight-faced say it's a high-value target no matter how many hundreds of people we kill. And I think when we see what the Israelis are doing right now, they're encircling Gaza City. They're encircling the built-up areas in the north. Um, and we saw Barrage just while we were on the air, a massacre there as well. I mean, I, I wrote down the Israeli army um, communiques, and you see them running into, they say, running into uh, anti-armor units in Beit Hanun. We responded with an airstrike. They don't respond by fighting face-to-face. -face. Welcome back. And that was uh, from Electronic Intifada, a blow-by-blow account of uh, developments in Gaza. And that's going to conclude our program for today, uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, today is Saturday, November the 4th, 2023, and uh, we've uh, been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you want to read the Pan-African Newswire so that you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with the music of the legendary jazz guitarist, uh, Wes Montgomery from the 1962 release entitled Full House. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.